0: Welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk, the developmentally
1: appropriate podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kathy. And today we have an interview with Michael Gramling about his book, The Great Disconnect in Early Childhood Education. You're going to love this one, Mom. Wow. You're gonna love Just it. the title got me all perked <laughs> up in my chair. <laughs> I think there's even I can't I don't have the book next to me, so I can't pull the quote out, but there was some quote in his book that said the whole language crowd had it right and when I read that I thought, Ooh, mom's gonna like him <laughs> <laughs> I love him because really I I am so glad that I taught in the whole language craze because whole language had a lot of things right. They had a lot of things wrong. They have, yes, you have to, you have to say but that with they the caveat, had, that there were some but things they wrong. Had, there was, but there was, they had a lot of things right that I have never let go of, and oral, oral language is one of them. Mm-hmm. So great, I can't wait to hear. Okay.
2: I'm Michael Gramley. Uh, my background is that I've uh, pretty much spent my entire life in early childhood education, or even my entire professional life, and I'm a parent of uh, five kids. Um, so by saying i spent my life doing it, I actually began teaching in a Head Start classroom. Um, and I did that for a number of years. So that really gave me uh, uh, more than just the theoretical side of child development, um, you know, and, Real kids, whether you're in a classroom or a parent, will certainly debunk your theories as often as they will validate them. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so that was that was always been uh, an important experience for me. And even though uh, I don't work in classrooms now, uh, I spend an awful lot of time traveling around the country and visiting classrooms and um, giving feedback to teachers and to their students. Uh, supervisors and to uh, school principals and so forth but you know what also just listening a lot I, I really want to keep my ear to the ground with what's going on uh, you know where the rubber meets the road um, so that's that's what I do now uh, my formal education is Pacific Oaks College which I owe a great uh, debt of gratitude to uh, and has really helped, uh, helped the way and change the way I think about this whole business of early
1: childhood education. And how did you come to write the book? It's it's called The Great Disconnect in Early Childhood Education: What We Know Versus What We Do, which is it the title immediately intrigued me cuz you know, as early childhood educators, I think a lot of us are feeling that disconnect that you're writing about. So how did you come to write this?
2: Well, um, I was sort of trying to say the things that are in the book almost one person at a time, uh, either giving feedback uh, to a particular teacher or to a particular early childhood program or even some at national conferences. And there'd be a lot of discussion. And you know what really sort of got me as we had these discussions was that I could get a lot of basic agreement from classroom teachers and managers and and the trainers and the consultants and everyone that you know what, yes, there is this great disconnect, and, and you're right, we really, really need to be focusing uh, on things that return us to basic uh, child development, things we learned the first week uh, when we went to school. Uh, but we can't, that's why I kept hearing that we can't, and when we can't always came back to the uh, demands of uh, bureaucracy and accountability. Uh, and I, and you know, as I came to realize that this is not about this teacher or that teacher, but it's uh, systemic, and it comes from a policy, both national and state, um, that serves the needs of the bureaucracy but not the needs of children. So when I, uh, when I decided uh, that, when I sort of reached that conclusion one day, when I was trying to write what was called school readiness goals for a program. And they wanted one of their goals was for uh, an early a zero to three program. And they wanted one of their goals to be the child will sit up. And I just said, I had some friends, you know, over at the house, and I looked over to them and said, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> this has really gone too far.
1: But <laughs> yeah. it was for three year olds, and it said the child will sit up.
2: No, it was for a zero to three. Z- it was, uh, it was, uh, you know. Incremental, the way these, uh-huh. these objectives are uh-huh. are structured. Uh, but what what I thought was funny is that uh, yes, the child will set up will set up whether or not uh, uh, he comes to an early childhood program or not. Uh, and so to <laughs> make that goal that we're going to work on um, is, is just so ridiculous. But uh-huh. that's uh, you know, that's sort of the uh, taking accountability to its logical conclusion.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So
2: that so that's what made me decide. Okay, what we really have to do is um, address policy,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Uh, and so I tried to write it as to as addressing policy, but from the classroom point of view. You mm-hmm. know, was, so yeah, so that's kind of how it, how it happened.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a, a little bit about Ralph Tyler? You mentioned Ralph Tyler in the book, and I liked how you introduced it because you mentioned that. Early childhood educators will know Vygotsky and Erickson and Piaget, but have we ever heard of Tyler? And, nope, I'd never heard of Tyler before.
2: Oh, I know. It's funny, isn't it? And I still go around doing that. What is funny to me now when I say, has anyone heard of Ralph Tyler, they actually raise their hands and say, yeah, he's in your book. So, (laughs) (laughs) so that's good. Uh, Yeah, Ralph Tyler is uh, called uh, the father of the performance objective. And the, his idea of education is one that we basically take for granted now. Uh, but he, he's, he was really the first guy who formally said, uh, way back in 1949, uh, that education should always uh, look at the end product first. So you begin with the objective in mind. And if you're going to begin with the objective in mind, You can't say, well, the child will learn or the child will know. You have to say the child will do something. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, funny thing about Ralph, he's not early childhood. He never said child. He said the student will. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then once you identify the objective, then you construct a lesson to see if you can teach the objective and then you evaluate whether it is effective based on what? Their performance. Mm -hmm. Can they sit up, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh Can they stand on one foot? right and uh the, and Ralph for Ralph, he never meant for this to have be part of early childhood education, but generally in education nationally and ever since then, that's been sort of the um, automatic approach. everyone says, well, of course, that's how you should do that. That way you know if your lesson worked, and you know if the student learned that one objective, but see what that does is what it reduces all learning into incremental, uh, linear performance objectives, which I think might work to learn algebra too. You know, you can put that on a computer in um, you know, incremental steps, uh, but it doesn't work in early childhood because in early childhood, children are learning everything all at once, all the mm-hmm. time.
0: Uh-huh. So,
2: so that's sort of, yeah, that's Ralph, all right. And so what I say to uh, educators, when I talk to them, I say, Yes, you've never heard of this man, but he's the one who guides your practice. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah,
1: and you talk a little bit about how, at uh, working from I get from backwards design, how that affects the way we teach and how it negatively affects the way we teach. Can you talk a little bit about more about what how that changes our teaching?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, backing up a little bit, it's mm-hmm. it's a disconnect between what we know versus what we do Mm
0: -hmm. true and Mm
2: -hmm. and when i say what we know what i often am referring to is is what we learned the very first week of um you know if we took child development 101 these are things that are just the rock bottom foundation of child development and early childhood education and 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 you know there's been lots of research and it keeps moving forward but the thing about this is that we're not doing research on the, uh, you know, in our profession on uh, what happens on the surface of Jupiter. Uh, so it doesn't take a lot of uh, uh, esoteric methods. Uh, children are right in front of us
0: mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so even if we don't uh, try to study them in a sort of quantitative manner the way we try to all the time, uh, we know certain things about them that are also part of the public domain, as well as our profession. Um, so one thing we know is that they develop extremely rapidly.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Right. Um, right. That, that's just right in front of your eyes, bam, you know. Mm-hmm. There's an infant, and then three years later they're walking, talking, running, right? uh-huh. these things, just like that. Uh, and I think there's, you know, there's always been a general agreement, you know, since Piaget or earlier, that early childhood experiences matter most. Mm -hmm. So we all understand that. We know what we do now matters so much that it affects outcome throughout the child's life.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So those are some of the things um, that we know that we have disregarded. Um, I'm getting to your question. I It's okay. I trust Uh, you. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, so one of the things that we also know is that Language is so, so important to the child's uh, intellectual development, their ability to think critically, um, their ability to problem solve, uh, that their skills in communicating from birth to five are highly predictive of their ability to be successful in school, in particular reading. We know that, we've known that for a long time. Um, and we know that children are not taught Uh, Communication skills. They're not taught language. And why do we know that? Well, we know that because children walk around uh, Using the words the idioms the vocabulary the metaphors the cadence the tone of voice the grammar exactly like the ones that they hear in their household Mm -hmm. no one teaches a one-year-old that no one teaches a four-year-old that they learn it by hearing us speak and to me, the most striking thing about the explosive acquisition of languages, uh, you know, I've personally met four-year-olds who could speak four languages.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They weren't taught any of that. Um, they heard it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They heard it in various contexts in their home. So that's what we know. We know that, that the adult voice is what matters. Um, and so the biggest disconnect that i talk about in my book is that we now take children at a very early age and put them in early childhood environments pretty much devoid of the adult voice
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, or at least of the authentic adult voice so that um uh, and so finally if you get to your question <laughs> one of one of the reasons for that is um, is tyler in that um, There is no room to understand that children are acquiring the ability to communicate by hearing adults communicate. We have to, if we uh, follow Tyler's um, pedagogy, is to just say, no, we're going to learn one thing today Mm -hmm. and and only one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to focus on. And we're going to work on it till the child masters it, Um, which is interesting. I use the example of the word on all the time. It's mm-hmm. actually it's taught in my childhood classrooms everywhere, the word on, mm-hmm. because it's a, a, a performance objective and it's important with math and spatial relationships and so forth. And uh, we'll ask children, uh, we'll put a cup on the table and say, is the cup on the table or under the table? And then we'll measure that, right? That's taught. T- that's taught. We have to first assess what's the child know, not know. And if he doesn't indicate that the cup is on the table, then we'll plan a lesson. And we'll work on, work on, learn to work on uh, until we're quite sure he's he knows it or she knows it. And then we'll mark it off and go to the next objective. That's Tyler.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and, of course, what is the fallacy to that? Well, that the child, by the time they enter our programs, knows that the cup is on the table. Uh, but he also knows that he has to come to school on time. He better be wearing his Uh, You know, he better have his shoes and socks on. Um, When he goes home, if he wants to know what's on television, he has to (laughs) turn the television on um, and so forth. I could go on, (laughs) Um, right? Uh Uh, So the difference in how the child actually knows how to use language and what the Tyler method, uh, how the Tyler method impacts how we actually try to present language for children is just, uh, it's just right out in front of you everywhere you go.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm sorry, now I'm going to have to make sure that this ringing you hear quits and doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> so we, we don't we don't assume competence. We don't assume that the child is absorbing the language at an astonishing rate. And instead, we uh, assume that we have to teach him everything he knows and that the only thing that's important that the child learn is the performance objective. Mm-hmm. So all other kinds of uh, uh, learning that occurs when we're not teaching is just totally uh, not valued in
0: our classrooms mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. all.
1: It it seems like looking at such narrow objectives has has narrowed our language in the classroom and the language in the classroom has become so dead and not as rich as it needs to be. And we all know how important language development is to these little kids. And you make such a good point that the way they're going to gain rich language is from hearing rich language. And if we just focus on just the narrow performance objectives all the time, we're actually defeating the purpose of the performance objective because our language becomes less rich. Am I understanding that right?
2: I think so, yes. Uh, the performance objective always then makes that the default um, the default subject of our conversation, you know, there's a story in the book about a little girl who looks up to a teacher with a lesson about facial features and she says, or facial expressions, and says, I have my mother's smile Mm
0: -hmm.
2: which would be, what a great opening for an authentic conversation and the teacher says, that's nice, what color is uh, your picture?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because the performance objective is color for that day
2: exactly yes so it all it all short circuits to that um and it creates a mindset that, that that what the performance objectives has done is said that it's not that we don't understand that proficiency in language is so important and that it's acquired by exposure to adult communication it's just so difficult to measure that. Mm-hmm. So what we have done with accountability, there we go, Tyler. Uh, <laughs> forms of, is that we have uh, only value that which is most easily measured. Mm-hmm. So when, even when we talk about, you know, what is rich language, for example, uh, the only the only thing, the only tool that we really have is counting words,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? Uh, and, and people have done that everyone knows that people count words mostly in homes i find it's so interesting that nobody's counting them in our early childhood classrooms and saying oh this home it's a you know it's a deficiency in this home because they're not using enough words um, so that's what's wrong with uh, people in poverty they don't use enough words um, and so that's fine let's blame people in poverty if that's what people think they have to do but <laughs> If that's really what you believe, then why don't we have classrooms that uh, are <laughs> using lots of words? Mm-hmm. And I'm not in favor of counting words. I, I think that that it's language is so complex, and, and there's so so much that g- goes into every sentence that is not that is so much more than what that sentence just said, in terms of the broader context that it's applied to. Um, that the only way those kinds of subtleties and complexities and contextualization can occur is by just hearing it used authentically all the time uh, around, uh, you know, about absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's very difficult to measure that. Uh, I mentioned in my book that the class takes a pretty good stab at it. But in order to, do, to measure that, then you have to break it into tiny pieces. And now we have people all over in early childhood programs worrying about the tiny pieces of their communication when they should again be simply worried about having authentic interactions.
1: Can we talk a little bit about what your vision is for the classroom? What, what a classroom that's, that's having authentic conversations and having rich language, what that looks like?
2: Um, yeah, um, I think when, when I look at the obstacles, I'd say let's look at first uh, accountability and the performance objectives and say, um, you can't have it both ways. You can't be planning for that kind of learning, the child knowing the word on or the child sitting up or the color blue, all those things. Um, And so one of my visions and I I talk about this a lot uh, is that, okay, let's assess, let's assess kids. Okay fine we don't want anyone to think that what we're doing isn't measurable Um, but let's use the assessment like a giant baby book Um, so for example um, i have a three-year-old niece who lives in hawaii i've only seen once but i can do a complete and thorough developmental assessment of her Mm -hmm. why do i know that well because her mom <laughs> puts her on facebook <laughs> 10 times a day <laughs> and a lot of it is video and a lot of it's pictures and a lot of it's exact quotes and a lot of his funny comments by the mom about her daughter and it's hilarious and it's entertaining but that body of knowledge that i have acquired about my my niece by by uh, staying on facebook is um, is my developmental assessment
0: mm-hmm. and
2: if you were if i had to get out uh, a formal assessment that is required by school systems and, and other federally, uh, and federally funded programs like Head Start, uh, I could complete it mm-hmm. would just fine by the raw information. So part of my vision is that, sure, if you want to assess, do it, but do it uh, without an agenda, do it globally. Simply capture, like my uh, sister does, what the child says, what the child does, what she draws, what she builds, what she plays, just capture it. And then if you want to try and put that into uh, something that that captures, you know, those incremental benchmarks, fine, don't teach to the benchmarks. So that's that's one part of what I see is that the um, the assessment part of it is ongoing and it happens really with everything the children do. And you can just say, Hey, wait a minute. I want to take a picture of that, or let me write that down, that's so cool. Or just let me come in here and take a video while you guys are playing. Uh, and so that you're actually building rich language while you're assessing, right? Mm-hmm. Because then you're looking at the pictures with the child and the videos, and you're reading the quotes to the child. So we're, it's like going on a vacation and uh, looking at the family album all the time and talking about what we did. Uh, So that would be one vision, that language and print rich and image rich classroom that constitutes both the content and the assessment of what we're doing. Um, Another important part that I see is is, uh, that in early childhood classrooms now, because we view it as preparation for school, which is actually a fairly narrow way of looking at it, that what we've done uh, in classrooms younger and younger is try to replicate school, mm-hmm. so with emphasis on moving children around in groups, right from here to here. It's now it's this time for that, and now it's this time for that. The way it will be in real school, uh, an emphasis on uh, following directions. If uh, no matter what your temperament or your abilities, sitting down and listening to the teacher, that. That whole thing totally gets in the way of uh, authentic communication. So I, uh, I really uh, help programs, and I've had some success with this, uh, more success than I have had them adopting the giant baby book theory of assessment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> opening, up, uh, opening up their classrooms so that uh, there's just a lot more freedom of movement, that all of the things that you find necessary to do uh, can happen, uh, but in a in a much larger time frame in which children really work with the child. Uh, work. So what I suggest to them is that so you have this thing where there's a time when you read a book, and there's a time when you have a small group, and there's a time when you have a large group, and then there's a time when you can actually go to centers. So and then of course there's all the maintenance, right? There's the uh, toileting and eating and napping and wiping people's noses, all that's going on. Um, that's your life in the classroom. <laughs> so uh, that uh, let's just do all of that all the time. Let's just say, for example, the classroom is open, and if you're the child who is most successful and secure and happy in the sand center, then you can walk in the door and be greeted by your teacher, and she can say, what you'd like to do today? And you can say sand center, and she'll say it's right over there, go ahead. Um, And does that mean, well, we're not going to eat at the right time? Of course we will. But we're not going to say to them, oh, I'm sorry, we all have to be in large group right now, learning the calendar and weather day in and day out. Um, Go ahead, be where you need to be, where you will be most successful. And that even in in many uh, early childhood programs, there's two adults, even if there's just two adults. Um, one adult can always sort of be talking to children individually in their learning centers, two, three, four at a time. And and uh, the other one can always be leading a teacher-led group, two, three, four at a time. So that that would be what it would look like. And what I tell teachers, especially in publicly funded programs, um, is if you want to know what that looks like, <laughs> Uh, I, th- I asked the question in my book, uh, where do rich kids go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, you don't see, uh, you see a whole lot more of exploration and discovery and conversation with teachers and child autonomy uh, than you do in that program that, that feels like it's got to replicate what kindergarten or first grade look like.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: th- that would certainly be a vision. Uh, and it would also be a vision that says teachers Talk to each other. Uh-huh. They share their experiences, things that they've done, stories about their own children. We we can't measure necessarily the quality of discourse in a classroom by the adults, but I think a good indicator is that it's real, uh-huh. right? Uh, it's so uh, it's so so much of the. Uh, Language used by adults is insincere. I'm sorry, it is. It's asking questions for the sake of asking. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Oh, tell me about that. And we really don't care what the answer is. We're just trying to uh, ask a question for the sake of answer. And we never respond with our own experiences.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it would be a classroom where adults talk to each other about their own experiences and where adults share their own experiences with children, which is as close as we can replicate uh, A language-rich home.
1: Yeah that was that was an interesting insight for me while I was reading because you mentioned that kids develop language in language-rich homes where parents are talking to each other and they're responding to the kids but in Mm -hmm. the classroom it's very artificial and it's very insincere and we'll Mm -hmm. ask questions but then we never respond in a conversational kind of way that was very that was a big uh, aha moment for me when I read that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's exactly right. And 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 when you think about the word disconnect, we know that it is the exposure to that adult language that creates proficiency in communicating. And yet we we practically forbid it, <laughs> it's impossible in our classrooms to do that. But that's exactly right. They really need to hear authentic authentic. Um, conversation from their teachers. I, and you know, when sometimes when I do training, I just give them prompts. I say every day, throughout the day, tell a story about when you were little. Tell a story about your family. Tell them a story about a great TV show you watched. Tell them about the time you went to the zoo. Mm-hmm. Talk to them about yourself. Because authenticity means we talk about stuff that's real,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that we actually know about. Well, what's more real and what do you actually know about than your own life, yeah. your own your own experiences? And uh, and is it's that from that model of the adult sharing feelings, experiences, opinions, ideas, likes and dislikes, all of those things that would happen in normal human discourse, from that the child builds the ability without effortlessly, his brain is wired to do it, effortlessly mm-hmm. to become a proficient communicator.
1: Yeah, and you gave an example in the book of something for parents to do that I, loved because I always hear parents say well I ask my kid when they get home how school was and they never tell me anything they they never tell me what they did at school and your idea in the book was that parents can they need to model that for their kids every day when you get home tell your kid what you did at work or what Mm -hmm. you did at home and model for them how to talk about your day because they can't tell you what they did during school if they don't have an example of how that looks which I love that
2: yeah yeah that's exactly right it is and that's that is as uh subtly based in in child development theory as we can imagine mm-hmm. how, how else would the child know it unless he experienced it
0: mm-hmm.
2: and and in the and in the notion that you know it, it happens early um and that 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 suggestion that you just uh, you know that I gave in the book Tell your child about your day, you know. Tell them about your life,
0: uh-huh. tell them
2: stories. Your kids love to hear about when you were little. Uh-huh. Um, tell them about everything and don't wait. Tell the infant that, uh-huh. right? When you're rocking that infant or holding that infant, feeding that infant, do that thinking out loud. Do that storytelling to the infant because what we can't sufficiently measure now is how much the infant is uh, comprehending uh but i'd rather err on the side that says absolutely everything <laughs> <laughs> right right they won't show you till they're two or three and then start you start hearing them talk like you talk and you go oh my god right
0: mm-hmm. but
2: it's because they've heard you do that since the day they were born mm-hmm. so yes absolutely
1: yeah and i was very inspired by the book because i, I must admit at the beginning i was a little overwhelmed Because I'm just a classroom teacher and I can't change policy, you know. Right. But I I was very comforted by the time I got to the middle and the end because I can't change policy, but I can change the way I talk to my students. Yes. And I don't need to change policy because if I do a good job talking with them, they'll meet the standards they need to meet anyway. Exactly. You know, so… I, I, I must admit I was a little overwhelmed at the beginning, but I was very comforted by the end because I can change me.
2: Well that's very it's, I'm glad, very glad to hear that. I, I think that tells me that you have faith in the child mm-hmm. right that you do that you realize that why well, yes the child the child's mind is a sponge. He's taking in everything at every moment. So you don't need to narrow it down to an objective. You just let everything be talked about and happen at every moment. And and the child's brain does all the work for him and for you, mm-hmm. right? And, right. Those there's, uh, those there's, uh, objectives take care of themselves in that environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and yes, you can do it without uh, with policy not being changed, but I find it more difficult uh, because a lot of policymakers want to see the much more rigid daily schedule. Mm-hmm and they want to have evidence that you not only identified but worked on specific objectives with lesson plans. Uh, and it's those sorts of policies that are run so completely contrary mm-hmm. uh, to children need. So if you're able to accomplish those things or if in your setting you don't have to do those things, then you're way ahead of the game,
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I'm lucky I work in a district and, and I think a lot of people in this situation, I would hope, where uh we're given a lot of trust as teachers and that's very comforting
0: Um, yes
2: yes you know and one of the things that uh nacy said uh i think in 2010 their statement on developmentally appropriate practice was the emphasis on teacher as decision maker Mm -hmm. and uh and what you said is just absolutely right someone has to have faith in you as a competent adult Mm -hmm. and The more what, and here's the direction that I just uh, really despise, it's uh, the programming of interactions. Like you can't read a book and talk about the characters or have that trigger a story about your experiences or their experiences, but this is exactly what to say to the child when you read the book. Uh, And the more prescriptive this becomes, then the further we get away from basic child development and how children learn. Mm -hmm. yes that's right faith in the teacher is so important
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and then that which means a teacher has has faith in the child
1: right right yeah right i'm going to mention the name of the book again in case anybody's looking for it right now and forgot it's the great disconnect in early childhood education do you have any final thoughts about the book before we wrap up
2: um well i um I do, we didn't mention uh, the universal um, school readiness goal,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, that's what I think folks, uh, if they get the book, could, could kind of look at that and, mm-hmm. and talk about how it's sort of the opposite of Tyler. It kind of takes Tyler's, the child will, and points mm-hmm. out how the child will learn so much faster and so much more deeply contextualized. Um, and the other thing, I was just thinking this today, getting ready for this, and if I'm going too long, just tell me.
1: You are not going too long.
2: Okay, <laughs> uh, I, when I wrote the book, I really struggled with sort of the notion of the deficit model of folks in poverty, mm. uh, the, the whole thing about they don't hear enough words, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. And, and which strikes me as really blaming the victim,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and on one hand, I say in the book, yes, let's help build language-rich homes, and I give that example tell your kid what you did today, talk to them about your life. But I also think that we are the educators, right? We know this. I don't think I've said much that we didn't already know that's true about children. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And we don't blame parents in first grade or second grade if they haven't taught the child the difference between an adverb and an adjective.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: We take that as as our job, right? Mm-hmm. and 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 so i would I would kind of like to to pull back from that notion of uh low income people uh, uh as a deficit model and say you know what we're the experts we're the one that knows how to do this we don't do it we don't model it for them you know but but we certainly could um and say, yeah, that's our job. And to whatever extent parents can be supported to pick up on that, that's great. But I really think that we need to pull away from that. Uh, oh, parents, all they do is management talk and scold and, and negative, and they don't converse. I think that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. You're not able to support parents. Uh, and you know, I think it's just as likely that we'll take a child out of a language-rich classroom and put them in one that has got
0: none.
2: If I write a sequel, then I, I'm going to talk about that more at length, uh, <laughs> the deficit model of parenting. Uh-huh. Uh, we really have to let that go. And I do say this in the book that, you know, I can't tell you necessarily out of measure the quality of language in anybody's home. Mm-hmm. County is not yet that I know, um, but certainly families from low incomes are incredible models for resourcefulness, mm-hmm. uh, problem solving, and critical thinking. Because things that that people that have just reasonable incomes, right, can just do because they have money, like get from one place to another, right. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a daily uh, act of problem solving. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: for folks who don't have those same resources. So, uh, as much as we can continue to understand uh, uh, a strength-based model of the families that we're working with, I think the better off we are. Um, And and we didn't touch so much on that, but what what I find so disturbing is that uh, this language devoid model that seems to dominate uh, so much more does adversely affect children in poverty. Um, And when we know that if we could provide language-rich environments they would do better academically and in so many other ways, um, we can't find a correlation between learning the alphabet at three and being a better reader. (laughs) I'm sorry, we can't. It's true. But we can find plenty of correlation between strong language and proficiency. It doesn't matter so much to those kids who have all the resources and all the uh, all the advantages. They're going to get it whether they come to our schools or not. In fact, it's funny to me that parents who don't have to will send their kids to a early childhood program so that they can like be around other children.
0: Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I say you know you want to be around other children then go to the park <laughs> 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 because <laughs> because uh, you know you put you put very young children in an institutional setting, well, do they learn social skills? No, they have teachers who have to break up conflicts all day long. That's Mm -hmm. what they do. Mm -hmm. And do they hear language? Well, maybe in rich kid preschool they do, but not a lot in the the publicly funded stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I tell parents, uh, before you put your kid anywhere, read the book and then go check out that classroom and, and see how institutional it might be and how devoid of language it might be before or uh, maybe uninstitutional and rich in language it might be
0: mm-hmm.
2: before you make those decisions.
1: Yeah, you mentioned something in the book, and I'm probably going to misquote it, but you talked about a, a program where the teachers were trying to make a shift, and mm-hmm. the director tells them, I know that kids gain rich language when they listen to two people talk, and I have two college-educated teachers here in the room, and they're not talking, you know? I have this resource <laughs> and we need to use it
2: yes yes exactly mm-hmm. yeah right that's it you know professionally professional college educated parents in affluent homes provide the model without trying
0: mm-hmm. which is
2: a, which i make strongly in the book it's it's effortless
0: mm-hmm. um
2: and so if that's the model we know works then right why aren't we providing that in the classroom why aren't our college educated professionals in our classroom speaking to each other mm-hmm. why yeah. yes
1: Yeah. And I, I I do love what you say about respecting parents who are in poverty more because I can really relate to that point. Having worked in a title one school and seeing how much those parents love their babies. Yes. They love them so much and they're doing the best they can. I am sorry, Michael, I'm crying now.
2: (laughs) I'll pull it together. But that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, there there were times in my life as a as a, uh, a child and a young adult, I was in poverty, and and the way folks treat you by you know your ragged clothes and your junky car uh, is so completely different. Um, so that that assumption of deficit is uh, something you can't help families. Uh, if, if you have that sort of deficit impression of them, we actually have to understand the incredible resources. And, and I love what you just said, how much they love the children. Mm-hmm. right? And and when I hear, anytime, if you want to really make me mad, and if you're a classroom teacher, you know, say something like, well, these parents don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. mm-hmm. Really? <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> uh, but I do that because I, I can't make any progress doing that with folks, mm-hmm. but I do try to say, <laughs> i think they do <laughs> as much as does yeah that's exactly right
1: yeah well thank you so much for sharing michael i really appreciate it and i really did love your book a whole lot
2: well okay. uh, thanks so much i hope folks will uh, take a look at it and um think about what it has to say and i appreciate this opportunity <laughs>
1: Bye, everyone. If you want to learn more about us, you can visit us at (laughs) kindergartenkiosk.com. Or if you have any suggestions for a great podcast, email us at kindergartenkiosk at gmail.com. And if you have any teacher friends or co-workers who are just really an expert at a topic, like mom's friend Kelly, who taught us all about trauma, would you please send them our way? We want to talk to them. So, write to us at kindergartenkiosk.com and rat, or write to, us, write to us at kindergartenkiosk at gmail.com and rat them out so we can get them on the podcast.
0: <laughs> I know, because that's
1: who we learn from. We learn from we each learn other. We learn from each other. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.
0: Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the education podcast network a network of podcasts for educators by educators for more information visit edupodcastnetwork.com that's edupodcastnetwork.com now can i listen to it